0: people in in the local communities as well. So, I want to bring up Rebecca. Thank you. I'm Rebecca. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> So I had to climb these stairs and I have to tell you that what happened to me yesterday is that I took a walk and I went over to my old alma mater which is uh, University of Oregon and I went to uh, find the law school that I went to because it's not a law school anymore I guess and on my way back um, because I had something happen on the way back that I'll talk about in a bit But on my way back, I fell. So I fell in front of the Holt Center. And I mean, I'm thinking, and I've got all these emotions going around in my head. And the next thing I know, I'm laying flat on the sidewalk. And the first thing I think is, oh my god, did anybody see that? (laughs) And the next thing I think is, did I break my hip? (laughs) You know? I'm really grateful to be here. I'm grateful to have been asked to speak to you today. Um, Greg and Angela uh, are really wonderful. have joined our Klamath Falls community, which is where I'm from. And they're still a part of your community, which you guys are so fortunate. We really appreciate them. And Joe, I appreciate uh, being able to talk to him. And Susan, thank you. And thank you to the speakers, because I'm just in awe of all of you. Allison, and Danny, and Pixie, and Barbara. I don't know where you are, Barbara. Hi. And Leanne, uh, thank you so much. There you are. I have to find you all. You know, I've spent most of the conference so far up, this portion up here, looking backwards, looking out on all of your faces, and it's touching. I get to watch everybody here. You're all on the same journey that I'm on. Some of you have been here longer. Some of you have been here less time. But every single day is so important. And if you're a newcomer, I hope that you've heard something at this conference that will keep you coming back. And there's always somebody that we can relate to. So thank you all for being here. I love sobriety. It's not hard for me to talk about the joy of living in sobriety because I love sobriety. And I love my life so um i got sober in march march 21st 1989 so i celebrated 30 years this year which was really fun and i got my 30-year coin in hawaii on the beach at that wonderful church meeting that is right on the beach and you know i got some Shells and oh my gosh, what a you know what a wonderful celebration to be sober. I have a son in sobriety he's given me permission to share a little bit of his story only as it relates to me. Um, I have a daughter who's in a different type of recovery she's also given me permission to share her story a bit only as it relates to me. so with that, I'd like to tell you. Um, you know, I'm going to talk about my family and my story as I was growing up for this reason. And it is the reason not because I drank over this, but because I believed I had every reason to not relate to you when I got here. I thought that my story was different. Nobody had a story like mine. And I I did not believe that any of you would understand me. So I was born into a situation that was filled with grief. My, uh, I'm an only child. I had a sister who was born a year before me. Um, my father and mother were picking my sister up from a, a, a babysitter on the 4th of July. My mother tripped and fell, my father got out to help her, and the car ran over my sister, and she died. So I never met this little person, this little baby, but I grew up with her because I grew up with the grief that my mother was experiencing. I knew when I was born, I knew as a very little child that my job was to take care of you. I knew that I had to make my mother happy no matter what because she was in so much pain. So early on, things became very difficult in my family. And you know, my mother ended up doing her thing, which was drinking and and had depression issues. um, What we probably now would call PTSD, and I don't think they called it that then. She uh, ended up in mental institutions. And so I would go live with my grandmother and my grandfather, and my grandmother was this really religious woman. And so I'd go to church all the time. and and you know it, it was a really stable home. And she gave me all those wonderful things. You know, she cooked, they had friends, she quilted. Uh, we went to church. Everything was really good. And then my mom would come home. And my mom did not come home to Klamath Falls because she couldn't. And so where my mother would go would be Reno Fallon. Carson City, Lake Tahoe, and my mother dealt cards. And so what would happen is, as a kid, I'd live with my grandparents. And then when my mother got better, I'd go live with her. And that sort of back and forth happened for a while. My father was also in the picture. He had divorced my mom. They weren't able to make it through that very difficult time. And he was remarried and had another family. And he'd been in a very bad accident and had his legs crushed. And, and so my father, at the age of 32, um, was very depressed, was not doing well. I was living with my mom by that point. And I have to tell you, you know, the first time I remember going to my mom's in Reno, I guess it was Fallon is where I ended up. I remember riding the bus, and so I related to that bus story. So the bus ride, though, was from Klamath Falls to Reno, where my mom picked me up, and I remember having this little suitcase, and I remember getting on the bus. It was a Greyhound bus, and I remember sitting right behind the bus driver, and off I go to this new adventure. So I end up going to live with my mom, which is pretty peaceful. Because at the time, my mother and her new husband were in sobriety. And I didn't really clue into that until much later when I got sober. So all I remember is going to this place, and I remember these men in suits, and I remember them standing up. There was a man standing up at the podium, and he was talking, and I couldn't remember what he was talking about, but I just remember that everybody looked really good. Um, But that didn't last. So what happened next is my father shot himself. And so the grief was just overwhelming. This is what I really remember about my childhood is this horrible amount of grief. And I remember this situation. We were at the bowling alley, and I found out my father had died at the bowling alley and my mother was in the bathroom and i could hear her throwing up and her friend pulls me aside and says you know she's really upset your father's dead and 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 i remember thinking not oh my god my father's dead i remember thinking oh my god my mother my mother so i was so worried about her i remember feeling that overwhelming Um, just overwhelming thought that I needed to be there for her. And so through that, at some point, my mother and her husband started drinking again. And so my stepfather was a doctor. And he was the doctor in Fallon. We lived right on Main Street. And he provided all the care for the house of ill repute in Fallon. And so these women would come through our house. I mean, they'd just come through our house all the time because our, our house had the office in the front. And so they'd come back and the guy that was with the women would come to our house. And you know, one really great memory I have is this guy had this huge bag, I mean, huge bag of sunglasses. And I'm like, and he says, Would you like a pair of sunglasses? And I'm like, Well, absolutely. And so I dig to the bottom and find the shiniest, prettiest pair of rhinestone blue sunglasses. And you know, I have those kind of memories from that time. I have some really bad memories because when they started drinking, my mother and I would move out, then we'd move back in, then we'd move out, and then we'd move back in. And so I began early on to feel that very strong sense of powerlessness. I, I just knew that things were spinning out of control and I just didn't know how to pull them back together. And I thought maybe if I tried really hard, I could pull it back together. And I also started feeling that sense of being really different because nobody else had a family like mine. So nobody else had, you know, the the doctor, the and I was always late for school. I don't know if any of you had that experience, but my stepfather would walk me into class and he would, he would go up and talk to the teacher, and it'd be very official, and it'd be, you know, and I'd be like, oh, just go away. You know, I just wanted to sink into myself. And so I was uncomfortable in my skin. I just did not know how to feel. I felt different, and I started feeling more and more different. So my father, stepfather, lost his physician license. He lost the license to practice in Fallon, Nevada, everywhere in Nevada, and so one day we came home, and the house was padlocked, and so um, you know something had happened financially, and I got sent back to Klamath Falls. So I'm in Klamath Falls again living with Grandma and Grandpa, and the next thing I know I'm getting called to come home again, but this time we're going to New Mexico. So we go to New Mexico and get down there, and everything's good. You know, I'm getting a clue that when people don't drink, life gets better. So life is better for a bit, and then everything goes bad again. So by this point, I'm probably in, like, sixth or seventh grade. And just, just throughout this, my mother is suicidal. So my mom would attempt suicides. And on at least one occasion, early on, I found her. And so I knew early on that my job was to save my mother's life. I knew that I had to watch her. And I remember a particular experience where I was at my friend's house. And I was going to spend the night, and they had this very normal house. Her name was Kathy, and her parents were, they called them salt salt and pepper. That's what they called the mother and father. And I remember them having this extremely normal life, like everything seemed normal. And I went over to spend the night, and something just bothered me. And I said, I have to go home. I just want to go home. And when I got home, my mother had attempted to take her life. And there was a friend there making her throw up. And so it became very difficult for me to feel like I could go anywhere. I started to feel like I just needed to be where my mom was. And so when we got to New Mexico, my mother and her husband um, separated. I mean, things went bad again. Right, because drinking started and just, you know, I don't have to tell you that story, what happens in relationships. What happened was they ended up separating. So we lived in Lovington, New Mexico. And we lived in this great house, in this great neighborhood, and you know, the Cadillacs out front. And one day I got home, and my mom had all my stuff loaded up. We got in the car and she said, we're moving. And I said, where to? Well, we moved to Hobbs, New Mexico. And where we moved to in Hobbs was um, like, it was a housing project. So for me, I'd never, you know, I'd never been exposed to different environments. And so I'm living in a house, housing project. It's in the 60s, there's lots of tension, the, you know, there's just lots of things happening. and. Again, I felt like I didn't belong. So now I don't belong. I'm like, none of the kids wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to speak to me. Um, I mean, I was being excluded. You know, it, it was, I just didn't fit in. And I ended up finding some people that, you know, plugged in the record player and listened to the music out on the basketball court. And we had a great time in the evenings. I was pretty much on my own. I was starting to get exposed to other thoughts. And, you know, I, I started to fit in with that crowd. But then my mother tried to take her life again. And this time she did it in a big way. And so what happened to her is she was committed and she was put into the Galveston State Hospital um, in Galveston, Texas, and my grandmother came down, picked me up, and took me back to Klamath Falls, Oregon. So, now I'm going to church every morning. I'm going to church on Wednesdays. I'm going to church twice on Sundays, and again, I'm, I'm thinking, I just don't fit in with these people. I know way too much. I've been exposed to way too much. And I didn't know why I didn't fit in then, but I just knew I felt like I didn't fit in. But you know, I wanted to fit in. And I wanted to be religious. And I had been baptized earlier in my life. I'd participated in this particular religion, and I really wanted to be good. You know, in our book, it talks about um, it talks about if if having a good moral code was all we needed, we would have all recovered long ago. And for me, that was the truth. Had I had that, I thought I could just be good. I could just be good, and that I would everything would work out. So when my mom was gone, and my grandma's taking me to church, all of a sudden, I discovered something. And I also discovered Boone's Farm, but mine was Apple Wine. And we had a hill in Clema Falls, and I discovered this hill. And this hill is where all the hippies were. And so I'm like, I like that hill. And I remember, I remember, our, we took a bus from Klamath Falls to Oakland at the time. And it was for the church that I was in. And I remember thinking as we're driving through the Bay Area, I'm like on the wrong bus here. Because I want those people, I want what they've got. I don't feel comfortable with you guys, and I think I could feel comfortable with them. So I start hanging out on this hill. I start drinking Boone's Farm apple wine, and you know, I wasn't worried anymore. I quit worrying. My uh, whole view and outlook on life got better. It's like And there was a little bit of that other stuff, too, floating around on that hill. And it just made me feel so good. I belonged. You liked me. And instead of being tall and gangly with buck teeth and curly hair, I was beautiful. And you loved me. That meant so much to me in my life to just belong. So fast forward my mother returns she was gone for two years and she had shock treatments so they used to treat people that were alcoholic with PTSD with major shock treatments So she had over a hundred of them and so my mother could not remember things you know she couldn't remember that it was oh yeah it was your birthday or oh yeah it was she just couldn't remember things and she was very aware of this she was a well-spoken woman she was smart, and she couldn't think well anymore. So she set up house in Fallon. I stayed with my grandmother, and at the end of my freshman year, okay, so I have this little life where I'm, you know, Boone's Farm, Apple Wine, whenever possible, hanging out with the people I felt comfortable with whenever possible, and then going to church And so my mom said, hey, you're in a stable place. You just stay right there. And so the summer after ninth grade, I went to live with my mom for the summer in Fallon. And I found this house. My mother worked in the evenings. She worked until like 2 in the morning. And I found this house where there were hippies. And I was like, I like you. I want to be with you. And I was like the youngest kid there. You know, I was really young, and I was hanging out with all these people that, you know, it was just the coolest place ever, you know, the, the lights, the music, the everything else that went with it, and they just passed around everything. And anything they'd pass around, I'd take. You know, it didn't matter what it was. As long as it was getting passed around by them, they must know what they're doing. And so, (laughs) you know, there were some great experiences, and there were some really scary experiences. Because if there had only been scary experiences, I probably would have gotten here sooner. There weren't just scary experiences. There were experiences that kept me coming back. At that point, because I felt like I belonged. They liked me. They thought I was funny. They thought I was cute. They liked me, and they gave me whatever I wanted. And so my mother would go to work, and I would go to the house. And, you know, it was just the house. Everybody knew about this house, and everybody in Fallon, Nevada went to this house that, you know, had anything going on. And so I was there a lot. So we come back after this summer to Klamath Falls and live next door to my dear grandmother. And my grandmother is like, what is going on here? Because now I have on overalls, you know, overalls. No bra. I, I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, come on, you know long and my hair gets really big and so I had let my hair start growing out and it looked kind of like Joplin. I mean, I was, I was just like rocking it and I was, you know, and I go back to school and everybody looks at me like, whoa, what has happened? Who are you? And I'm like, and I start hanging out. I you know, I go to this school, I start hanging out in the parking lot. Everybody that was cool hung out in the parking lot. You know, I was smoking cigarettes, and they let us smoke in those days. So we could hang out in the parking lot, smoke cigarettes. And I found another house. So this house had waterbeds in it, because the guy owned a waterbed store. And so we'd like sneak out of school and we'd go over the hill, and we'd go to the waterbed house. You know, it was just like the greatest thing that had ever happened. I could leave school and go hang out with the waterbed man. And I mean, it was it was just awesome. I really loved that. And I remember, you know, he'd, he'd have incense and, and he'd always have some Boone's Farm or something in the back. We were always happy. There was other stuff. And, you know, I started getting in trouble at school because I was leaving. And so five weeks into 10th grade, my dean of students called me in, and, she, and I'll never forget her wording. She said... I don't think the school is for you." And I said, Well, I don't think it is either. (laughs) And that was that. (laughs) I mean, I left school. Uh, I didn't go back. I never finished high school. I'm like, what's the point? You know, those people don't have water beds. So I ended up, um, so here I am. I'm still kind of this Mormon kid, right? Ooh, I'm so sorry. I didn't say, mean to say the, the name, but that's the religion I grew up in. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, so I end up um, running away. Now, th- this is what I start doing. I decide that I want to go back to Fallon, Nevada to the house because it was much better there. And so I start running away. So one night I put my finger out, my finger out, I put my thumb out, and um, I got picked out up. Um, and I got picked out, actually. Not just picked up, I got picked out. Because what happened was I was essentially, you know, somebody took me where I wasn't going and out in the middle of the desert, and I was assaulted. Now, I thought I was a clever young girl, so I had a knife, a steak knife, with me. And, and I remember having that steak knife in my little pack that I was carrying, and I remember taking that steak knife and throwing it under the seat, because there was enough sense in me to know that this person could kill me with that steak knife. And that's what the plan appeared to be. So what I did is I learned how to, I had learned how to talk my way through difficult situations by this point. I knew how to talk to my mom. You know, I was her counselor. So I would talk to my mom about her suicidal thinking and I would talk her out of her suicidal thinking. And you know, that was a gift because I talked myself out of being killed. I got this guy to drive me into town and drop me off. And even in good faith, he showed me his driver's license. I mean, he believed me. He believed that I was going to go home and stay quiet. You know, you add that on to everything else, and he was convicted. You add that on to everything else, and I started getting angry. So now I was like, here I was, this kid that was just trying to, you know, find a nice waterbed. And next thing I know, you know, I'm starting to get angry. I'm getting angry at life. I'm getting angry at you. I'm getting angry at my mom. And all I want is away. So I really start running away in earnest. I ended up in a home. In Portland, a, a home, in a, it was the Catholic nuns ran this home for girls that were out of control, and I was one of them, but I ran away from there. And so um, I ended up on the streets of Portland. and. Um, So I had an experience here this weekend, and I'll share it when I don't feel so teared up about it. But you know, I ended up on the streets of Portland, and uh, that was a scary place to be. I ended up in abandoned apartment buildings. There were definitely no waterbeds. There was no fun. It was very scary. But you know, I didn't know how scared I was. I just kept going along with it all. And by the grace of God, I ended up getting dropped off in the woods somewhere. And, um, you know, I have a friend here that hikes the Pacific Crest Trail and she takes her pack and she goes out and sleeps in the tent. And I'm like, you know what, I don't like tents. And, and I, I don't mind hiking, but I'm not spending the night out there. And just this weekend, I thought, yeah, I got dropped in the woods. So I got lost in the woods on the Oregon coast, somewhere around Tillamook. And if you know that area, it's just like, oh, you know. So I couldn't find my way out. I kept doing circles and circles. And somewhere around like 2 in the morning, I get out on the road, and I'm thinking. So now I'm thinking, right? Okay, do I put my thumb out again? Because that scared me. Or do I go back in the woods, and that scared me more? So I put my thumb out, and I got picked up by two really kind people and they took me to jail. thats They didn't know where else to take me, so they took me to jail. And so I ended up in jail. So I was in Tillamook County Jail, and I was the only female, and I was the only juvenile. And, you know, I, I was just, wow, you know, how did this happen? So I remember praying. I'd get over that toilet, like it was, I mean, it it was The toilet was in the middle of the room, so it was kind of the place to go. And I'd, I'd get in front of that toilet, and I'd be like, God, if you could just get me out of this, please, just get me out of this. I didn't mean to cause all this trouble. I just want to go home. And by this point, I'm like, I don't know. I guess I was 15 years old. And um, so I had this probation officer. Uh, who had got me into the school uh, that came and got me. And she said, you know, she said, your mom wants you to come home with her. And she said, I think I can get the judge to let you go home with her. And by the way, that judge, I have his door. So when the Klamath County Courthouse uh, had an earthquake and went down, they were selling all these items from the Klamath County courthouse. And that judge that let me go to my mom's house, I got his door. And it has a mail slot, and it's really the coolest door ever, and I have it. So just... (laughs) So... So... I go to my mom's. Okay, so now this gets, gets a little funky because the next thing that happens, and this is my first exposure to... It's what they called, I don't know what we called it back then. It's where everybody lived to try and get better. And so there was a place called Sinanon at the time. And there was an offshoot of Sinanon called Enitas, and it was in Carson City, Nevada. And they had a pig farm. And they also had some kids from the Sinanon founders. And so I went and lived at Enitas, and my mother went and lived at Sinanon. Um, And so I was there for about eight months. I turned 16 in that um, place. Um, But, you know, I never understood that I was suffering from the disease of alcoholism. I always thought I was too young. I thought I was too good. I thought I just needed a place to be for a while. And so I stayed there and when I left, I left with a heroin addict and I married him. Now I was 16. And the reason I married him is because he was worried that he might get arrested if we weren't married. And so we got married. By then my mother had left Sinanon because they were making the women shave their heads and it wasn't happening. You know, my mom came back to Reno, I was there. I was now with an incredibly abusive guy. I'm gonna get there. I, I so <laughs> it just takes a minute to get there, right? It's the road we travel. So I get to um, you know, I'm get pregnant. I have my daughter, um, my wonderful, beautiful daughter, and I get the courage to leave. So during this period of time, I'm not really thinking about drinking, and I'm not really thinking about anything else because I'm really worried about this guy in my life. He's scaring me. And so I'm not sure who can relate to this story, but when his behavior gets worse, mine gets better. When he's not around, I plummet. So I got rid of him, and I I fled. I fled to Reno. My mother had moved to Reno. I went and stayed with her. I got a job. I went to, to work in the clubs. So I was a waitress because I was really young, and that's what I did. And then I met... Him, again. So in between that and here, I'm I'm still really young, but I'm drinking. You know, I go out in the clubs and drink, and I'm tall. I look like I know what I'm doing, and I talk like I know what I'm doing. And damn it, I'm old enough to be here, and I was there, and they'd let me in those after-hour clubs. So I would go drinking all the time. You know, I'd party. I'd go to all the after-hours parties. Um, And I was starting to behave in ways that, gosh, I didn't know that I'd behave like that with a daughter. I thought that I'd behave better with a daughter, but I wasn't. So fast forward, here comes the next guy. He comes into the sundowner club where I'm working. I like him. He likes me. He's in Delancey Street. So, now I don't know if you know about Delancey Street, but Delancey Street is a synonym kind of place, a little different. And he's been living there for quite a while and he's clean and he's sober. And I'm like, wow, you look really put together. And he was in school and I thought, oh, this is a new life for me. And so I packed up all my stuff and moved to San Francisco. I moved into the Mission District. I uh, got a job at David's Deli in San Francisco and I wasn't drinking because he wasn't drinking. So none of us were drinking, nobody in Delancey Street was drinking and I was hanging there. But what happened was he left and when he left he started drinking and when he left I started drinking. And that that is when my drinking started to progress in a very serious way. I got a job at a bar. I was a cocktail waitress. It was a wonderful place for me to work because the bartender would just give me everything I wanted. I'd say, well, I would like this, and he'd just put it up there. And my alcoholism started to go down the hill. It progressed. We ended up separating, we ended up divorcing, he left, I moved to Klamath Falls. So, but in the meantime, so what happened for me in California that was positive was I started going to City College in in California, or in in San Francisco, and then I ended up going to Cal State Hayward, and I ended up graduating uh, in their nursing program. And I graduated valedictorian. So, you know, here I am, this little kid that's been on the streets. I'm still drinking. And I graduate from that program. What happened this the, right before I graduated is my mother took her life. <sighs> and I started drinking in earnest because I could not cope with that feeling. I don't think I've, well, I don't think I've ever felt that desperate in my life and not known what to do with it. And I started drinking a lot you know, I'd go over on Clement Street and I'd drink dark beer and I'd hang with the Irishman and I'd have just a great old time. And, you know, then I'd drive drunk back over to, at the time, I ended up living in Hayward, so I'd drive over the bridge. I, I mean, it was just a crazy time. So I got back to Clamath Falls and I thought, this will straighten it out. This will straighten my life out. When I got to Clamath Falls... It didn't straighten anything out. I started drinking in a very, very earnest way. I would go out with the nurses that I worked with. I was a critical care nurse. I would go out with the nurses that I worked with and we would just have this you know, marvelous time and I'd say, I have to go home. I have to go home and sleep. And I would go to the local tavern and I would drink with the people that knew what drinking was about. You know, it was my new waterbed house. It's like, I just would show up and I would feel like I was home. It's the only place I felt like I was home was in the bar. I would tell my kids, by then I've got another child, my son Derek. Um, I would tell my kids I'll be home. You know, don't worry, I'll be home by 7, I'm going to drink Diet Pepsi. And I would go out, I would have a Diet Pepsi, and I'd say, well, one beer should be fine. One beer should be fine. And then I would pick up a beer and I'd say, well, one pitcher won't hurt. And and then it was just, you know, the bets were off. I like tequila a lot, so I'd end up going to the next bar and having shots of tequila. And, you know, then I'd be... You know, I was that knee-crawling drunk. Toilets, toilets are a big part of my story. So, you know, I I mean, I would be over the toilet. And I felt such shame about that, you know, that moral breakdown. I would go home with men. You know, it didn't seem to matter, really. Um, I just wanted somebody. You know, some I wanted to find something. So I end up meeting this guy in the bar. Um, he was really handsome. I really liked him. And uh, we got together. And we, we were kinda together for a while. And he and I got married. And that was March 19th, 1989. And if you do the math, I got sober the next day. Shock. (laughs) Your party girl is gone, honey. Um, So what happened for me was this. And it was a spiritual moment and a spiritual awakening for me. We went to Reno and got married. We were staying in Valley's casino. Now I knew casinos quite well by this point in my life. I'd stayed in them, I'd eaten Thanksgiving dinner in them with my mom. I knew that life. And I said to him, when we get married, we're not gonna drink, okay? Because I don't want to ruin our wedding. So we get to Bally's. They have big baskets, kind of like these baskets, except they've got a great big bottle of champagne in them. And we get up there, and my husband says, mm. And I said, mm, it's free. We have to have this. I mean, are you kidding? And so we go to our room. We set this basket over on this counter. And I just don't care about anything else. All I care about is when are we going to open this champagne and get to it? You know, I, I mean, it, it was an obsession. It was that obsession. I could not quit thinking about the champagne. I didn't care what we were doing. I wanted that champagne. The next day, we had our kids with us. The next day, his daughter, my son, my daughter were sitting in a red booth. And I had sat in those booths so many times. And I am looking at my husband over by the slot machines with a drink in his hand. And I had an awakening. And I thought to myself, Rebecca, you have one choice. You can either have this, or you can have something better. And I wanted something better. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous because I knew about it as a young child. And I knew about it through friends. And when I got back, I went to a women's meeting. And I went to this women's meeting in Holly and Martin, Klamath Falls, Oregon. And I saw this woman speak, and I I will never forget her story. You know, she said, and she lets me repeat this because she's still my sponsor. She said that she got into a horse accident and she got her nose ripped off and the dog ate it. And I thought, oh my God, I love her. <laughs> so she, she became my sponsor. That was my sponsor. You know, I thought I needed tragedy. So that's why I'm sharing my story with you because I needed tragedy. I wasn't a tough girl. I, I wasn't any of those things. I had a tragic existence in my mind, and poor me, poor me, poor me. I needed somebody that could relate to tragedy, and she could. (sighs) So I'm going to fast forward to a couple of things that are really wonderful that have happened in sobriety. Um, One of them is I got to go to law school. And so I graduated from law school 24 years ago. So I was three years sober when I went to law school. Um, But it wasn't a wonderful experience until this weekend. And I'm going to explain that to you. When I went to law school, I fired my sponsor. I didn't think she knew anything about anything. I quit going to meetings. I uh, quit working the steps. And I thought I had arrived. I thought, I'm, I'm, I have arrived. I don't need all of this crap. And so I go to law school. I make it through my first year, and I am desperate. I mean, I am desperate. My husband's leaving me. My daughters aren't talking to me. They're both on the run somewhere. My son wants to go live with his stepfather instead of his mother. And I'm like, oh, my God. What is going on here? And I get in my car and I think to myself, I'm going back to Klamath Falls. I'm going to go drink. Or I'm gonna take that next semi that's coming down the road. I'm gonna take it on. And I was waiting for the semi because I thought that was a better decision than drinking. And I, I waited. And all of a sudden, I see over to the right a sign that says Silver Lake. And I have friends that are sober that have a camp in Silver Lake. They have a all year, like all summer year, um, that they have a camp set out there. And I had been there one time. And I turned onto that road. You know that we take those roads, don't we? I turned on that road instead of into that semi and I ended up out in the wilderness with my friend who was making medicine bags. And I sat with her on the side of the river watching her make medicine bags and I had that feeling come over me. And like you said, It's either God is everything or God is nothing. And I had that feeling deep in my heart that God was right there with me and it was going to be okay. And one of the things I say to the women I sponsor is it's already okay. It's already okay. And that was the feeling that I had. You know, I graduated from law school One of my kids ended up having um, issues with alcohol. And I'm going to fast forward to this story for a minute. Um, And it, it happened about six years ago. So before I get there, I'm going to tell you just that the thing that I did once I had that awakening is I called my sponsor. And I said, Ray, and, you know, I have to tell you, her husband's name is Bill W. And he was my husband's sponsor. And by the way, my husband never did it right. You should have seen his first fifth step with me. It was only this long. And I gave it back. And I called my sponsor. And I said, you need to talk to your husband about how he's working with my husband on his fist step. Because that was like totally inadequate. And I remember her saying, you know, why don't you stay out of his business? (laughs) No. (laughs) And he never did do another fist step after that. Um, So (sighs) critical care nurse. Here I am now, a lawyer. um, And I have a son that's out of control drinking. And I'm just turning it over and turning it over and doing the steps with my sponsor and turning it over and turning it over. And, you know, I mean, because my character defects are kicking in. And, of course, me, I'm going to save him. You know, and I'm talking about this from an alcoholic perspective. This is my character defect. I'm going to save my son. I finally had to let go. And six years ago, on Labor Day, we had a very big family party. There were 20-some people there, all of us sober except for my son, who came in the back, went in the hot tub, went and dove out of a tree into my swimming pool and broke his neck. So, and this is a God thing. So my husband, who's barbecuing, You know, this is crazy stuff. My husband, who's barbecuing, decides I need to put chemicals in the pool. So you can't see our pool from where we are. We live on terraces. We live on a hill. So you can't see our pool. It's not visible from where we're eating. So he goes in the garage, goes and gets the chemicals to go put the pool in the pool, and I'm thinking, why? I mean, that's, like, really weird. And he goes down there, and our son is floating in the pool. Um, and he screams for me, and my son was blue, uh, he had no pulse, he had no respirations, he was gone. Now, my son is 6'4", he's a big boy, and all I remember is, he was a feather. We just pulled him out of that pool, and I knew that he probably had a neck injury. We pulled him out of that pool, and we put him down on the side of the pool, and, um, You know, I was able to do CPR. So 17 minutes. And the miracle of that is my son has no brain damage today. But he's a quadriplegic. So my gratitude about that is that he lived, and more importantly than that, and he didn't get immediately sober, but I go to meetings with him now. He's in meetings with me. Um, He opens up a meeting in Klamath Falls, meeting on Garden Street, seven o'clock in the morning. I go there too, every day, every day. He's been sober for three years. And uh, at the last conference that we had in Klamath Falls, the Oregon area conference, he was the disability person helping other people with disabilities. You know, it's the gifts that we get in this program are incredible. So I'm gonna going to finish up here. I think we're about out of time. Uh, <laughs> um, well, so. When I was in law school, I did not perceive that as being a gift because I was not doing the work that I needed to do. I was really angry. I really hated law school. I hated the people that were teaching law school for the most part. I had a couple of people I liked. You know, I was very rebellious. It was almost like being in high school again. I did not behave well. And uh, I mean, I just didn't. I'd argue with my professors. I made them mad. You know, I remember one professor like turning beet red because I was challenging him. And I had no business challenging this remarkably intelligent man, but that's what I did. Um, And you know, I've never come back to this law school. Here I am, 30 years sober, and I've never gone back to the law school. That I went to. So yesterday, this was before I fell in front of the Holt Center, not after, I walked to U of O and I found that old law school. You know, and some of that power went out of that. And I thought, wow, wow, I went to the school. I went to the school. And I used to work across the street at Sacred Heart during law school. So I walked down that road. Everybody else would go to the bar, and I would go, not everybody, but a lot of people went to the bar, and I'd go straight to work. And then I came around the corner, and there was a group of homeless kids. And I thought, wow. There I am. That's me. And I wanted to go up to them, and I wanted to say, look, no matter what happens, there's gifts for you out there. And those gifts are magnificent, and they're huge. You know, I found a power greater than myself in Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not have the power to save my mother. I didn't have the power to save my sister. I didn't have the power to save my father. I helped my son, but I didn't have the power to change the outcome. And I wanted to. I did not want him to have to deal with that situation. But you know what? God took care of that. I have a granddaughter that is his child. And she and I were in the swimming pool. We have cut the tree down. But we all still love to swim. And she and I were in the swimming pool the other night. She's 12 years old. She looks at me and she says, Grandma, if there were one thing that you could change, what would it be? Easy question, right? And I said, you know, I would change what I said to my mother when she told me she wanted to die. I would tell her that there's hope. That no matter what, there's always hope. And she looks at me and she says, you didn't say my dad. And I said, oh no, I wouldn't change that. And she said, me neither. She said he would not be the person he is, Grandma, if we changed that. And that's alcoholism. You know, we do so much damage to the people we love. Today I have four granddaughters The oldest is 23, graduated from Corvallis last year. She's gonna be a vet. I have three other grandchildren, granddaughters that are awesome. I have a sober son, and you know, I don't know. I, I hope he stays sober, I hope he keeps coming back, but I have no control over that. I have no any control over anything. All I know is that God has been there for me. And that God is either either everything or God is nothing. And in my life today, God is everything. I hope you heard something today. I hope that part of my story touches somebody here. I know that your stories touch me. You know, it's why I sit and look that way, not this way, a lot of the times, because I love to see your faces. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for allowing me to speak today, and it's a great way to live. Thank you. All right, let's circle up and do the serenity prayer.